Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to see you. Uh, my name's Stu. I'm part of the team here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. And if it's your first time here, you are so welcome. Happy New Year, everybody. 2019. Do you know, as I've kind of thought about this week, the crazy thing, hey, there's the Blakey's, nice to see you. Um, the crazy thing is, it's been 19 years since the millennium. Do you, now, some of you don't actually know what the millennium was. Um, <laughs> which is crazy, 19 years ago. Like, do you remember the millennium? Do you remember that? It's 2020 next year. It's crazy. Um, we survived Y2K. We're here. Um, and I hope that you've had a great start to your new year. Um, I love this time of year. I, I love reflecting on the year that has passed and the things that we love, the things we want to celebrate. But it's also an opportunity, kind of this first or second week in January, to begin to make new choices, to begin to make some resolutions, to think about how we're going to live slightly differently in 2019. And I love all of that. I'm a big fan of those uh, decision-making seasons. But there is one danger in all of this. There's one danger in the first week of January. It can all feel a little bit selfish, can't it? The focus can be all about us, our exercise plans, our diet plans, our choices to drink more water every day, reducing our screen time. There's this danger in and around this time of year of it all being a little bit self-centered, it all being a little bit self-involved. And for us at Lagan Valley Vineyard, we want to go in a slightly different direction this year. We want to change our focus at the start of this brand new year. What if... At the start of this new year, in 2019, our focus wasn't on ourselves, but was on everybody else. If you're here for the first time, or you're checking us out as a community, it might be really helpful for you to know that we believe that we are here for our city, and we're here for our region. And we're ordering our lives around seeing every person and every part come alive with the life of Jesus. We don't want to be self-involved, but we want to be tangibly involved in the heart of our city and of our region, bringing the life of Jesus to every person and every part. So what if instead of self-improvement, what about instead of seeing this year being defined by a gym membership or by ripped up lists of resolutions, we saw our year take a very different kind of shape. Maybe the shape of a table, a table, a place of welcome, a feast of grace, a place of hospitality. At the start of 2019, we want to explore what it would look like and what it would mean for us as a community to be the most welcoming and the most hospitable people that we can be in this city. And over the next four Sundays, we're going to join Jesus of Nazareth around four tables that he gathered around in Luke's gospel. Jesus loved to get around tables. It's one of my favorite parts of how he lived his life. He loved sitting, well, actually, it's more reclining. Jesus was a bit of an OG. He loved reclining at a table, sharing food and wine with friends, with people that you never would have expected, sharing stories, communing at unexpected dinner parties. And we're going to learn over the next couple of weeks the true nature, time and time again, is that Jesus turned routine meals into kingdom moments that as he sat there and ate and drank with friends and with strangers, he acted out the kingdom of God, the kingdom that had come near, exploring the nature of welcome and hospitality. So in January, Andy, Laura, and myself are going to be exploring the nature of welcome and hospitality in the kingdom, and we're going to be doing it from different angles over the course of the next couple of weeks. 
but hospitality that creates spaces of unexpected kinship. Hospitality that provokes and offends the religious and hospitality that feels like home. Let me introduce you to somebody. This is Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier was born into a life of privilege and promise. He was the son of Canada's governor general. He served in the Royal Navy and he attended university in Paris, earning a doctorate in moral philosophy. And he returned back home to his home city in Toronto to teach philosophy at its university there. He was highly educated. He was an intellectual. He was a very rich man. But in 1963, Vanier received word from Father Thomas, a priest that he had met in Paris. And Father Thomas was now serving as a chaplain for about 30 people with severe learning difficulties. And he urged Vanier to return back to Paris to do something. And whenever Vanier returned he began to pay more attention to the living conditions of those with learning disabilities in France. And he describes a desire to keep those who were quote unquote different out of sight, bound off by institutions that look more like prisons than places of care. He traveled to an asylum in the south of Paris where he found about 80 men living in what he described as chaos. They were confined to one of two concrete dormitories, about half the size of the stage. There was little light. There was no work. There was no interaction with the outside world. They were confined off, and they spent most of their day simply just walking around in circles in this chaotic room. And it was this moment that Vanier began to devote his life to breaking down some borders. He began a movement of breaking down some walls, no longer confining himself to the intellectual elite, he began a movement towards belonging, bridging the gap between those who were confined by the state for being too, quote, unquote, different for society. He made tangible change, and he did it in the best way possible, through relationships. A year later, Vanier invited two men, two men with learning difficulties, who were previously institutionalized by the state, men called Raphael and Philippe, he invited them to come and to live with him. And they established a rather different kind of community, a community that didn't make an awful lot of sense at the time. Three people from two very different communities came together to share life together. And they decided to name their home L'Arche, the French word for Ark, after Noah's Ark. And very quickly, L'Arche homes began to spring up around Paris, around France, around Europe, and now the rest of the world, there is a large home on the Ormer Road. Places that were an alternative to these prison-like institutions, where people both with and without disabilities could live in covenant community together, based on friendship and based on belonging. Vanier's movement towards belonging caused him to empty himself, to empty himself of his privilege, of his money, of his intellectualism, and to create a space, an environment where even those who were once completely left out of sight could join him, could commune with him, could eat and drink and have their being with him like a brother or a sister. Jean Vanier still lives in that same home as an 88-year-old man today. And he says this about the church. I'm going to flick up the next slide. In the midst of all of the violence and corruption of the world, God invites us, the people of God, you and I, today, to create new places of belonging, 
places of sharing, of peace, and of kindness, where no one needs to defend him or herself, places where each one is loved and accepted with one's own fragility, abilities, and disabilities. This is my vision for our churches, that they would become places of belonging, places of sharing. This is a dream for the church. Not just church as a building, not just churches gatherings like this, but the comings and goings of our everyday lives as the people of God, where we as the church can live with radical hospitality, making room at our tables for people across to be welcomed home. Experience love and acceptance and belonging, to be welcomed home. If you've got a Bible with you, or there's one on your seat. I'd love you to turn with me to Luke chapter five. It's page 715 in the Bibles that are around you. If you wanna just keep this open as a bit of a guide as I work through this next bit. Levi was sitting at his tax collecting booth one day and he sees a rabbi by the name of Jesus of Nazareth walk by him. And Jesus calls out, follow me. And so he got up, he left everything behind, and he went after Jesus. And that night, Levi gathers his friends, many of whom were tax collectors, to share a meal, to have a party at his house. Now, tax collectors were really, really unpopular in this age. They made their money through dishonest means. They were of a low social status, and they did the work of Rome the enemy state that had occupied the nation of Israel. They were hated by everybody, but they were particularly hated by religious Jews or Pharisees because they saw them as being unclean, unpure of their work because they rubbed shoulders with unclean Gentiles, people like you and me, people who were unholy, breakers of the religious purity laws. The tax collectors were the ones that everybody loved to hate. And as this feast is happening, as this party has kicked off, the Pharisees show up. They were deeply religious Jews, high standing in society, loads of money, and they would have devoted themselves for years to the teachings of the Hebrew scriptures. And they would have really concentrated particularly on the purity laws in the Torah. They believed by sticking to the do's and the do nots of the law that they would be pure, that they would be able to be holy by sheer effort. Now, It's really helpful to know as we begin to work our way through this series that meals played such a significant role in this culture. This wasn't just having a quick meal with your friends and then moving on to the next thing. And as part of the meal, there would have been space for entertainment or discussion or debate. A guest would have been brought along to share a story or to bring some teaching. And that night, the Pharisees would have heard that this prophet, this Jesus of Nazareth that they've heard a little bit about was gonna be there. They'd heard that he had been saying some really interesting things about this kingdom that they had been longing so much to experience. And so they kind of joined him at this open house table. But what they saw whenever they got there completely messed with their heads. Because a shared meal at this time was more than just a bit of food. It symbolized a shared life. It symbolized family. A meal meant intimacy. It meant kinship. They would have saw this so-called prophet talking about this anticipated kingdom that they had been longing for, but around this table, they would have seen these faces that they recognized. People who they would have walked by every single day. And yet as they walked by them, they would have had these words that would have rang through their head. Unclean, unholy, 
outcast, sinner. These were the people that they wouldn't be seen dead with, the people that they avoided at all costs, people who didn't keep the Sabbath, people who didn't keep the purity laws. They were branded by the Pharisees as sinners. Now, here's the thing. For the Pharisees, holiness and redemption was for those who separated themselves from the people who were around the table, these so-called sinners table so that they could protect them. They created these borders. They built these walls around this table so that they could protect themselves and stay holy. How on earth could this so-called prophet speak of this kingdom? How could he open up the Hebrew scriptures? And yet how on earth could he eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners? It made absolutely no sense. As Jesus reclined at tables, he broke all the cultural norms. Jesus invited those who would never have been invited to sit at any other table to come and to have a meal with him. He transformed meals into parables, parables that tangibly displayed God's offer of forgiveness that extends to everybody, like a loving father inviting all prodigals to return back and to dine at his table. Jesus at tables performed and practiced the kingdom of God. And I love that he did it with food, and with drinks, the most tangible things in our lives. He demonstrated what the kingdom of heaven was like, where Jews would dine with Gentiles, where slaves would dine with free men and women, where tax collectors would dine with the religious. There would be young and old, there'd be rich and there'd be poor, there would be the prostitutes were on the outside looking in. In their religiosity, they built a wall, they built a border. Surely the kingdom of heaven was for people like us who kept ourselves clean, who kept ourselves holy, people who separated ourselves from those kinds of people. I'm in absolutely no doubt that the Pharisees would have been welcomed at Levi's table. If they'd sat down, they would have, like, food would have been presented in front of them. They would have been able to have some drinks. They would have had conversation. Yet they chose to stand on the outside looking in because of their self-obsession their self-importance, their self-protection, their desire to stick to their own kind of way. The Pharisees removed themselves to be onlookers in the kingdom that they had longed so much to experience for themselves. They chose to be spectators at a distance rather than participants of the kingdom that they were chasing after. They were offended by the scandal of grace that was led before them a scandal of grace that extended beyond their worldview of do's and don'ts. They stood on the outside looking in. It's the sadness of misguided religion. Here's the thing. The Pharisees get such a bad rap in the Gospels. I, I get it, mostly. But as I've reflected upon this text this week, I've become really aware that it's easy for me as somebody who is convinced of Jesus' love for me, convinced that the Holy Spirit is active and alive in my life, who is able to live into all of the freedom that I'm able to experience, that I can think, hey, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm able to live this life. I'm sitting at the table with Jesus enjoying his presence. It's great. I can think that the Pharisees are removed, that there's somebody different. But here's the thing. There's a danger of downplaying our own sense of religiosity of thinking that we've got it sussed. And here's the thing, there is so much more legalism in my life that I would care to admit. There's a danger of me thinking that I am a case study in the kingdom of heaven as a white, male, third level educated 
middle-class person with a paycheck at the end of a month that I am a case study in the kingdom of heaven. Simply not true. The kingdom extends so much further and so much wider than somebody like me. Verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and with sinners, they asked. And Jesus responded, those who are well have no need for a physician or a doctor, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Whenever it comes to Jesus, we see that he was never on the outside looking in. He never built walls. He always broke them down. He was right in the thick of it, sharing his love with those who were on the margins, the disenfranchised ones, the hurting ones. The priority for him was not the ones who thought that they were well, the ones who with their strict diet of self-help and sticking to the law made themselves holy. No, Jesus came for people like Levi, people who saw in Christ something and someone so much greater than themselves, someone that they were willing to drop everything and experience the kind of transformation that he brings. He came for people who needed a kind of doctor. Now, I'm not a doctor. My younger brother is, though he's the one that my parents love the most. Um, but there's, <laughs> there's two things that I want to talk about. Two things I know from conversations that I've had with my brother and with other doctors. There's two things, two aspects, two rules of life around being a doctor that Jesus, I think, embodies so, so well. And he also invites us to experience too. The first thing is this. Doctors never treat anybody at arm's length. No matter what the condition, no matter what the sickness or the illness, no matter the identity of the patient, no matter where they've come from, what they have or they have not done, no matter their pay packet or their lack of it, doctors are those who act without borders. They cross boundaries all the time that are at play outside of their clinic. Yet in the treatment room, in the hospital, the labels, the stigmas, the tribes, they simply don't matter. There's no cultural border that can prevent a doctor from treating a patient. If you are a medic or a nurse um, or involved in the health profession, there may be um, a series of words that you might be familiar with. Unconditional positive regard. Unconditional positive regard. It's the way of life that those in the medical profession are asked to live into which is full of acceptance and full of support of seeing this patient come to health regardless of anything. Doctors never exclude patients. They never separate themselves. They may not agree with the person's choice. They may not live the same kind of life that they do, but whenever it comes to caring for that patient that's in front of them, it really doesn't matter. The starting place for a doctor is always moving towards the patient with positivity. Always moving towards them. Never fearing what that means. Particularly never fearing their reputation, which is the source of all religious thinking. What will they think if I do this? There's none of that that goes on in a treatment room. 
What would, it, what would it mean if I'm seen with that person or seen to help that person? That does not matter. That is the fear of religious thinking. Doctors live so much more confidently than that. They draw close. They make contact. They never stay at arm's length. They engage with the patient indiscriminately. They see them, they recognize them, and they look upon them with kindness and with compassion, with service, and they do it up close. They identify with their patients. They welcome them. A doctor is somebody who acts without borders. They break down walls that would once separate them. Walls of fear, of suspicion, of judgment, of difference. They are indifferent to difference. Ultimately, doctors serve. And why? Because their desire is for this patient to be well. They look at patients with unconditional positive regard and they long for them to live into health and into the fullness of life. What would it look like in 2019 if we looked upon our neighbors, our work colleagues, the people that we really don't like, those communities that we're slightly suspicious of? What if we looked upon our enemies with unconditional positive regard and actually, like Jesus himself, laid a table? We moved towards them full of unconditional positive regard. What would that do for our relationships? But more than that, what would that do for our city? The welcome feast that Jesus offered is wide. It extends to all, even the unexpected ones. Yet as people got to experience Jesus' presence, as they got to sit with him and to eat and to drink with him, to commune with him, as he approached people, those people never stayed the same. As he approached people with unconditional positive regard, he didn't want people just to simply remain as they were, just welcomed. No, he wanted them to experience transformation. Like a doctor, he wanted them to live into health and into the fullness of life. Jesus came with the invitation to change, of true repentance, the invitation of transformation. Despite where anyone is at, despite the shape of their lives, Jesus moved towards these people. He invited them to eat and to drink with him. But also in the gracious invitation of the kingdom, Jesus also invited these people to experience radical change, a change of lifestyle, a change of heart, a change of perspective. At the table of Christ, we see him moving towards people in hospitality, and yet at the same time, he gives them this invitation to transformation. He is able to hold these things in tension. There's this divine dance that Jesus is able to do, but we're not really good at holding things in tension, are we? So often we revert back to the religious way of thinking. We place an order to our relationships. You change, and then maybe I'll move towards you. Or maybe what usually is the case, once you change, then you can come towards me. But in the way of Jesus, he had this remarkable ability, this divine dance that he was able to live with, hospitality and transformation. Unconditional positive regard and the invitation to life in all of its fullness. This divine dance between the grace of hospitality and the life-giving cost of discipleship. We are gonna see Jesus time and time again this January live out this way 
work through this divine dance of unconditional positive regard and the invitation to transformation, to do both of those things at exactly the same time. And as Jesus lived in this way, we are to also. Ultimately, this divine dance that Jesus engaged in is the mark of confident kingdom living, where we are the kind of people who are unafraid to move towards anybody. We move towards people full of compassion and love and kindness and no sense of fear. Yet we also know that the greatest thing that we can do is to extend the love of Jesus, invite them to experience his presence and invite them to experience his transformation. Jesus came as a doctor, not for the self-righteous, but for those who long to experience change those who long to experience health and wholeness. And he did that by laying an unexpected kind of table, a table of hospitality, a table that created an unexpected kind of community full of people who in any other part of life would never be found together. Yet at his table, we are all one and we are all family. Everyone was welcome. As the Pharisees approached Levi's table, they were baffled by what they saw. Sinners, tax collectors, outcasts, and this so-called prophet dining together as one. They saw that the kingdom of heaven had come near, the kingdom gathering itself around a table. It looked so different. It looked unusual. They had never seen a community quite like it. As people approached the home of Jean and Raphael and Philippe, they were baffled by what they saw. People previously seen as quote-unquote difference becoming friends. They saw it gather in a home. Borders broken down as people saw the kingdom of heaven gather in a home. My prayer for us in 2019 is that we would practice the way of Jesus of Nazareth. That we would practice the kingdom. That our homes, our dinner tables, our schedules our times together as a community, the times whenever we scatter out as a community, that our entire lives would look like Levi's table, that they would look like the home of Jean and Raphael and Philippe, that we would embody the way of Jesus, that we would live like a doctor without borders, that we would practice hospitality by showing unconditional positive regard, and at the same time, inviting people to experience the kind of transformation that can only come through the great physician, Jesus. And here's the thing. To live in this way, it should feel pretty similar to us. It's kind of second nature because it's our story. We're those who have received the hospitality of Jesus, brothers and sisters. We dine at his table we enjoy his presence. We know that we can't be saved by self-help, by self-protection, by bordering ourselves from people that we think are different or unholy. The Holy One himself has shown unconditional positive regard to somebody like me. He has drawn me to his table, yet he has also invited me into a life where I'm experiencing his transformation I've experienced, you've experienced this divine dance, God's coming close to us, meeting us with kindness and with love and with compassion. But yet how we think 
and how we live, the order and the shape, the priority, the character and the attitudes of our lives, our very being are being changed and are being transformed by him. And so this year, as we lay a table, a table of welcome for others, a table of transformation, we do so knowing that first we have been welcomed. We are changing. We have experienced the radical hospitality of Jesus for ourselves. We find ourselves gathered around a very unexpected table with a very eclectic family around at the church. And here's the thing with hospitality. Hospitality breeds hospitality. As you've experienced a welcome, so you are to extend that welcome to others. And so today, as we begin this series, but also as we begin this new year as a community, we're going to do it by gathering around a table. You totally saw that one coming, right? We're going to share the same meal that Jesus shared the night before he died, the meal that he shared with his friends, a meal of bread and wine, a meal of remembrance, a meal that reminds us of the hospitality that we have received but also provokes us to go and to embody that hospitality to other people. So today, this morning, may we feast on the grace of Christ, but this year, may we extend that same welcome that we have received to others, to people all across our city and all across our region, so that they may experience welcome and transformation. Let's stand together, shall we?